welcome to another edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you exactly like it is. And this is episode number 183. We're at 183. And there's a lot of things kind of going on uh, in this in this world of ours. Uh, number one, I'm still amazed that the pro-Hamas, pro-Palestinian riots have have just you know they've gained traction in in this country and and kind of uh around the world a little bit uh at least in first world countries this is amazing to me and of course i i see the news where they they try to interview some of these people who don't even know the basic facts of of what's going on so uh you can you can think that a lot of them are dunderheads and uh they don't really want to uh understand what's going on but what i don't like is it they're becoming increasingly more violent now that's all being directed at jews right now but pretty soon it's going to be you and me and so we got to kind of stand everybody needs to stand together a little bit um you know clearly i i said in i don't know if the last podcast or the one before um antifa is going to to tie into this either with just crossover membership or they're going to make decide that this now becomes their cause uh, remember they're they're an anarchist organization they want to bring down everything and they don't care if it's biden uh the the democratic party is tearing itself in half because half of them want to go support hamas and the other half wants to support israel so it's uh you know put your popcorn in the microwave get it ready because it's going to be something to watch but you know for you and i as people we're still you know we're still under the threat of you know just regular street crime which is spiraling out of control and this is this is just like it this is just like it um you know they're they could come beat your head in and there's going to be no consequences for them so um the rules that are for the criminals that are really pro-criminal right now are also going to be the rules for these people and it's a uh, going to be a fairly ugly ugly situation um you know everybody thinks it's cute and cool that there's a uh, you know that some of these prosecutors are basically these far left people but all of a sudden now they've they've across the country they've actually amassed real power and that real power is they're letting crooks loose. They're not prosecuting. They're going after the kind of people who they shouldn't go after, and they're not going after the kind of people they should go after. And our society is starting to crumble. You know, you can feel it just quaking under the pressure. Um, that and the economics stuff is just uh, incredible. Just incredible. And of course, uh, you know... One of the things I, I need to talk about is um, I basically, as soon as I heard the news, I did a podcast and, and it was, you know, breaking the Larry Vickers news. If you don't know who Larry Vickers was, you don't you don't follow the gun culture closely, at least the the content creation part of it. Now, this guy, um, he's about 60 years old, uh, former Delta Force. Um, I think his big his big gut. Uh, 
time in, in glory was uh, Panama. I think he was part of a rescue operation there. Um, he was a super good guy. I mean, a super good guy, a patriot, super good guy. Um, he made a name for himself even before he got out of the service about 20 years ago uh, that, you know, he was a, he was kind of doing some of their custom gunsmithing. Now, if you know these tier one units, um, I don't know how to exactly put this, but they're all about practicality and not about looks and finish. So when you see, you know, some of the early work that was done, like to put a, ra uh, a rail on a 1911 pistol, you'll see it's it's on and it's true and it mounts it and everything. But but you can see the welds and everything. It's not it's not taken down to commercial standards. Um, some of these guys. You know, like with their sniper rifles, they'll actually spot weld the rings together and spot weld the rings to the scope tube because, hey, you know, it's not their rifle. So, you know, they don't really care. And they but they can't have this thing getting loose. Can't be. Hey, I just missed the terrorist because, oh, gee, my mount, my mount screw came a little loose. You know, Loctite isn't going to cut it. They need to make sure it's absolutely not going to move. And if they need to junk it. They can do that because they have big budgets and they get the kind of weapons they need. They, they, they modify the, the weapons they want. I mean, uh, they mounted, uh, you know, primitive red dots onto M3 grease guns when they had those. I mean, it's not, it's not unusual for them to do that. And he was one of the guys who could do that kind of work. You look at his, you look at the examples of that kind of work now and you say, oh, wow, no, nobody would ever pay for that. But again, it was a just a gun that was, you know, in many ways, probably a government surplus gun, you know, 1911 that had been taken out of circulation. So nobody really cared. You could you could weld a rail onto the thing or, you know, put sights on it, whatever you needed to do. I'm sure later he became a better gunsmith because he did sell some guns commercially. So I think he did uh, pick up on the how they need to look. But he's been more famous for his partnership with, um, oh, probably half a dozen companies selling uh, different gear or limited edition guns or things under his name. So he's, he's been very famous that way. He's also a content creator. He's got, you know, his videos, unless they've been taken down, they're all over the place, um, you know, on and on. He was on some of those, uh, I think he had a show on the... Uh, um, outdoor channel or, or one of those one of those uh, you know kind of low end channels that had um, had some gun content you know the low budget shows which were okay I mean, you know they were fine uh, they were basically better quality than YouTube videos but they weren't you know there weren't anything that uh, is going to gain the uh, big slice of the audience uh, on uh, <laughs> on Saturday night. But they were they were okay. And if you're into guns, they were they were very entertaining and, and a lot of fun. So he's he is that guy. Um, now let me just clarify myself. This is not sour grapes. I actually liked Larry Vickers' content quite a bit. I have never met him. Um, he certainly has never met me in any context or even heard of me in any context. So there's no there's no connection there whatsoever. I'm also not the customer for a lot of the stuff he has. I, I don't really care for the slings. Um, 
and, and some of this other stuff that he he has kind of uh, put out. So I don't really, uh, I'm not really his customer as far as I'm not buying high-end uh, 1911s from from some of the manufacturers that he's been dealing with. So all of that being as it said, um, my military career was very different. I was never nearly as high speed as Larry Vickers in any way, shape, or form. So this is not professional jealousy. Uh, this is me admitting that that you know I'm a mere mortal, uh, but you know I I do have eyes and I kind of see what's going on around me. And what started going on was started a couple of years ago that um, Larry Vickers his his was having problems with the ATF and he's got one of those special occupational tax licenses and all that kind of class three FFL stuff, which is not my world. Um, which I'll explain why, but that is not my world. So he was into all that content creator, firearms trainer, um, a guy who was definitely in the, you know, business of, you know, he was multifaceted in the firearms business, a big personality, a big face, very articulate on television. You know, he came across as kind of a regular guy, wasn't a smooth talker, but he is. You know, but he's sounds and looks and says things that are very, very authentic. So he was really a very popular uh, character, and he had all this. And about two years ago, started having there were rumors kind of circulating around on the internet that he was having some problems. One of those problems was he had a curable form of lymphoma, so he was undergoing treatment for that. The other side was that he was having problems with the ATF. And so, long story short, this has obviously been a two-year process, which is largely hidden from the uh, um, general public. All of a sudden, boom, at the you know end of last month, I think it was the 20th or 21st of uh, October, it's like, yeah, he's pled guilty to two felonies. And the two felonies, as near as I can tell, one is... He, it was a conspiracy to get class three weapons um, under fraudulent law letters where, you know, a police department wants to test a firearm. So they go to a guy like Vickers, who's got the license, he gets it, they test it out, and they kind of give it a thumbs up or thumbs down. And if they give it a thumbs down, that becomes part of his post dealer sample, post 86 dealer sample stock. Which is effectively means that he has control of it and he's got it. And as long as he's got a license, he can possess it, shoot it, do whatever he wants to with it. He could show it to other police departments. He could just not show it to anybody else for the rest of the time. It doesn't matter. So apparently he was using this and conspired with some tiny departments so that he could just build his supply of these I don't want to say put him in a collection, but that in layman's terms, he was building a collection of these of these kind of guns. And he had conspired with others to to, you know, have the have the architecture and the machinations to make that happen. So that was the first thing they got him on. The next thing they got him on was in 2014, uh, Russia invades Crimea. Uh, that creates a lot of problems, and there are some targeted sanctions, and of course, firearms uh, stuff is everything but the ammunition. Wolf was still allowed to import. They were still allowed to import Russian ammunition, 
but the guns and all that became a no-go. And that's why you don't see a lot of, uh, except on the secondary market, you don't see anything made in Russia anymore. You know, for 10 years, that's been a no-go. But he went over to Russia, actually made videos there, and apparently was uh, working with them in some other, with some deals to either set up some manufacturing here or some or in a third country some some kind of deal he was working a deal with them which benefited a targeted with entities that were targeted by sanctions so they got him with all that um came down to two felonies and so he announced that he had pled guilty to those now that means he's convicted he pled guilty there is no trial there is no anything else and he's waiting to be sentenced and I guess that happens in a month or two um, now of course the uproar on the internet is since all all gun laws are unconstitutional anyway this this is all bullshit um, this is obviously targeting they're targeting veterans they're targeting this targeting that um, you know this really it's this is terrible it shouldn't happen to him they're going after him and so I'll just leave that lie. That That is what it is. But the fact of the matter is, uh, when you do two felonies, you, you've, you're now a felon. And felons just aren't legally welcome in the gun space. You know, I mean, my understanding is, and I'm no, I'm no legal beagle, but uh, I do believe that he is now not, he, he would, under my understanding, would not be allowed to possess, handle, or uh, purchase or sell firearms. You know, it's kind of like like it's over. You know, take up take up another hobby because this this one's done. You you you're done. But he's still advertising training classes, and and then he put out a he put out two statements. The first one he put out was only out for like two or three days. And that was where he explained, yeah, I did it. I'm a big boy, big, big boy rules. I own my actions. Then he proceeds to throw Wilson Combat, who he's worked with for years, under the bus because they basically said, hey, we're done with you. As of October 31st, we're finished. And he's like, man, you know, these guys are, he didn't use the word stabbing him in the back, but he, he was basically saying, yeah, you know, everybody else is kind of standing by me and these guys threw me under the bus. And it was pretty whiny. Um, that's just my opinion. Uh, two days later, he'd taken it down and he put up another thing that was worded similarly but did not have the anti-Wilson combat stuff in it. And so, you know, that's that's kind of where it sits. And you sit there and you go, this is just incredible. You know, this is just incredible. Um, number one, you know... <laughs> It is very easy, you know, that it, it is very easy to get in trouble with the ATF if you're a dealer. Uh, that's a zero defect environment. That's just, that's just what it is. And if you think that those guys are going to cut anybody's slack, um, they're not. They're not going to cut Larry Vickers' slack because he's a veteran and he was in Delta Force and he's this really good guy and you know he comes across like a real american you know they're not going to cut him slack any more than you know they should cut hunter biden slack because his daddy's the president i mean i think the rules are the rules for everybody 
And nobody should get a carve out. Nobody should get a break for something they would put you or I in jail for or you know put a hurt on us for. They shouldn't get a they shouldn't get a uh, a freebie on that just because of who they are. That's not how the justice system works. And this is a case where it works that way for somebody who we have a lot of sympathy and empathy with, but unfortunately, you know, it, it just can't be that way. Now, Wilson Combat, you know, face it, they are they are a top-end company. I mean, I, I spend time at ranges, and I don't really see a lot of Wilson Combat guns. This is not Sturm Ruger we're talking about. This is a, a really a custom shop that turns out high-end 1911s. If you make a great deal of money, um, you know, you are, if you are a, a well-paid professional, you know, an attorney, a physician, or something else, you, and you're a 1911 guy, you are probably a Wilson Combat customer, or potential customer. I myself am not their customer. Um, I, some of their accessories and, and parts and things are, are kind of cool, but I am not their customer. Um, I don't buy multi-thousand dollar 1911s. So, but I do understand that a company that has that kind of clientele, hey, I'm sorry, they're not going to put Larry Vickers' name on anything else ever again because he's a felon. <laughs> you know, he's a felon. Nor do they really want to be associated with him. So everything that they have put out with Larry Vickers' name on it or with his image selling it or whatever else, I'm sure that's all kind of the, the any kind of advertising or imagery is all gone. And if there's a Larry Vickers signature pistol that they put out, I, I'm sure that they'll service it and all that, but they are not going to make a big deal out of this. They are, they are not going to use... Larry Vickers is no longer his persona... His, uh, his name, his image, his likeness, <laughs> you know, is no longer an asset to them. So therefore, they're going to cut him loose. That's a business decision. And maybe, you know, I, I know he, he, he touted that he was friends with Bill Wilson. Uh, but maybe maybe that's all gone south, too. You know, maybe Bill Wilson said, hey, you're, an, you're a jerk for doing this. Uh, we had the golden goose, you know, the goose is laying the golden eggs for us. And uh, you've now let the ATF into the into the coop, you know. Um, so he may be may be pissed off about that. Who knows? Um, what I do know is that there is in the kind of the gun the gun royalty has always been sort of entitled. You know, going back to even the great gun writers of the '50s, '60s, '70s. 80s um they, they were always entitled they got all the benny i mean you know those guys you know the truth of the matter is they didn't buy ammunition they didn't even buy a lot of the guns they had they were they were given those gratis or at way reduced prices um in exchange for favorable reviews you know everybody knows this everybody knew it you know, if you have a gun magazine, you're not going to trash a Smith & Wesson product and then go back the next month and try to sell them advertising. <laughs> you know, that's just not going to happen. So anybody buying advertising from them, their products were good to go, in air quotes. You know, they were going to be good. And it's the same way. It works the same way now. Um, you know, these guys are entitled. 
and they're, they're there. And, and what you're seeing is this entitlement. I think that there's a suspension of disbelief here, or what do they call it, cognitive dissonance, where I don't know that, that Larry Vickers has fully accepted what's happened to him. It's like, dude, you're now a felon. You know, you, you could have fought it out in court, and maybe I'm sure his lawyers told him, don't do this, you'll go broke, and, and you know, this is the best deal you're going to get. That's the only reason you plead, because somebody tells you, this is the best way, you're, you're, even if you beat the charges in court, you're going to be so broke that, uh, you know, you're going to be a pauper for the rest of your life. So they probably told him that. They also probably told him he got no priors, probably won't go to jail. So he did that, but he... he is not going to be a firearms trainer. He is not the guy. You know, it's it's almost the O.J. Simpson uh, model where, you know, guess what? Three days ago, you were a big sports hero that everybody wanted your autograph. Um, you kill your wife, and then all of a sudden, two days two days after that, you're the biggest criminal and, mo- and infamous person in America. You know, I mean, that's what it is. And what he doesn't realize is he has... St- Stepped over a line, or as I call it, dancing. <laughs> he's, he's dancing at the edge of the ballroom, dancing on the edge of the Grand Canyon. And guess what? When you do that, um, after a certain, you know, there's there's a certain percentage and a risk there that you're going to go over the edge, and you're not going to hit anything until you hit the bottom, and that's a long way away. And that's what he's doing. That's what he did. I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not an expert on the SOTs and the class three things, but I, I, if he pled to them, they had to have had him dead, basically cold on those. So, you know, it's it's kind of a warning. I'll say it's, I don't know if it's a warning or it's an apocryphal tale for the rest of us. Um, you know, don't let something you love ruin you you know i love firearms firearms are it for me but i can't let them ruin me i can't get into that kind of trouble and you know i i know the frustration of some of these guys i have a a semi-automatic thompson sbr do i wish it was full auto yes i do but the fact of the matter is it's not and i have to live with that and you know it would be fun to have a lot of guns with a quote fun switch although i i do believe that you know at a certain point there's certain things that are more fun than others um i'm not going to go to jail it's it isn't worth going to jail it isn't worth crashing your life because um and, and here's the here's the story they told is Ian from Forgotten Weapons loves French rifles. Well, a few years ago, five or six, more than that maybe, maybe seven or eight years ago, he got a semi-automatic French FAMAS rifle. You know, they, they used to call it the Bugle. It's kind of an, it's an ugly thing actually, but it's a, uh, it, it was a post M16A1, kind of this weird style uh, um, select fire rifle. Um, chambered for 5.56. French used it for about 30 some years. And then they went to, they've gone to something else like HK 4.16s or something. But there was a semi automatic version approved for import, 
two, three hundred of them came in, and that was it. They, they number one, they weren't selling, and number two, you know, they probably just didn't really want to make that many. So anyway, Vickers had one, and he sold it to the Forgotten Weapons guy. And the Forgotten Weapons guy, you know, it's like, yeah, he's showed this on his videos. And he's competed with it and everything. And, and, and everybody's happy for him because that's like a Holy Grail gun. If you love French rifles, that's a Holy Grail gun. And it's always happy to see somebody get something like that. So he got that. And uh, essentially, uh, the reason he got that was because apparently a fully automatic one was imported for <laughs> one of these probably one of these law letter things and stayed in the SOT inventory of Mr. Vickers. It's all conjecture, but it, it kind of points that way. And, you know, it's like sometimes the semi-automatic version is just, you know, that would have been the one worth keeping. Uh, you know, there are videos of, you know, this is a Rhodesian FAL and it's, you know, got the fun switch, meaning fully automatic and all that. I'm sure that was all the same kind of deal. Uh, they imported these things and, you know, uh, did not do the proper demonstration of these things and then just kind of keep it in their inventory. You know, at a certain point, that's that's where something you love is killing you. And not only is it did it ruin his hobby, but his business was all completely tied up with all this. The name Larry Vickers meant something in the firearms business he endorsed something um it was it was good he endorsed way back early double star um ar-15s i actually i actually bought one and i'll tell you it's a great ar-15 it is a it's actually an m4 for an m forgery if you will but um it's a great gun and vickers vickers was one said yeah these are these are good to go then he you know he he's done other other guys too but um you know vickers meant something and what he doesn't understand is now he he doesn't mean anything he people look at him and he's now the dirty kid you know because he he broke the law so don't let the law um don't let the law kill something that you love and kill your whole life along with it i mean i don't know what he's going to do i mean i guess he could get into muscle cars or something but um you know who who would really want to do that so you know you have to be very careful and um you know a lot of these guys with these sot licenses they got to really look at what they're doing with those because it's not just you can't approach something with hey this is a workaround so i don't really i can get around a rule in the law i don't like uh, sometimes they'll come back and say, no, that's not the intent of this. The intent of this is something else, and therefore you're breaking the law by doing what you're doing. So it's a, uh, it's a, it's a real tragedy because, like I said, he, there are guys in uniform who do some extraordinary work, and he was one of them. Uh, I, think he was, I think he was a very entertaining gun content creator, um, and I hate to see somebody you know crash like that. And I hate to see their, their entitlement kind of, you know, a lot of special operations guys are that way, uh, especially the tier one guys, you know, the SEAL Team 6 and the Delta Force and, and all the rest of it. Uh, they, they think they can just do what they want. They, 
they just think they have this carte blanche and it's like i'm sorry it is not there and it's certainly not there once you once you leave that world that is not you do not have that lifetime card to do that okay next thing and we're gonna we're gonna kind of roll through some of this uh the bump stocks and pistol braces apparently the bands on those things are having a hard time in the courts and uh it's gonna be amazing to see what what really happens the pistol braces the, the atf blew it on that and i mean they just got admonished in court because they said they were legal for so long and now they're trying to switch it's never going to stick so i think pistol braces um you know they're going to weather the storm bump stocks i don't know personally i you know i'm on the side of bump stocks because i don't like regulation of any type but i have no personal use for a bump stock so um to me it's clearly a spectator thing it's not something that i'm vested in so i let people know that okay here is an interesting thing last podcast i rated the trapdoor the sharps and the rolling block you know as kind of single shot rifles um and i put the rolling block on the bottom for a variety of reasons and of course i go into a local gun shop and what do i see very attractively priced is a 5070 rolling block so of course i bought it so here the the one i just rated lowest um i i just go out and literally uh, probably five days later i bought it i bought it so um the cool part about it is is that number one i've always liked the rolling blocks anyway i mean when i rate things it's it's kind of like you know rating your which Hollywood stars do you think are the most attractive or which which cars do you like the best? There's no real bad choices. But this uh, this rolling block was a uh, and this is this is the funny part is 5070 and it was converted from 12.7 by 44 rimmed, which was a Swedish Norwegian cartridge that the their early rolling blocks were in because this is one of those. So I um I basically, I wasn't even sure it was 5070. It didn't matter because I wanted it. I knew it was one of those two calibers. So I, I basically got it, and then uh, when I got it home, I went and scrounged around, and I, I had um, some 5070 ammo. I put it in, and it fit perfectly. So I'm like, ah, I'm there, I'm there. But I don't, I don't have that much 5070. The only my only experience with 5070 before this was I have a new model 1863 Sharps, which was converted from percussion to um, to 5070. I'll talk about it later, but um, so that was my only deal. And so I I had it, but I don't have very much ammunition for that. So um, I basically. Uh, was looking around for 5070 brass and it's like hey i don't want to buy 100 of these things for almost 200 bucks i mean I, i'm just not going to shoot it that much so i found <laughs> the original 12.7 by 44 rimmed brass which was made from 50 alaskan cut down i found that for uh um you know like a I think it was a buck and a half a piece so I said well shoot I'll just buy those I'll buy some of those and see if they work 
And lo and behold, um, because the only difference between the two cartridges is, is in rim dimensions, um, they, it works in a 5070 just fine. Uh, it doesn't, it just, the rim's just a little bit smaller, but it's still the extractors in both, both the guns will pick it up and, and kick it out. So the, the awesome part of this story is I bought a rolling block that was converted to 5070 so that it would be easier to find ammo for and shoot. But since 5070 is hard to find, I actually got the original cartridge because that was available so I could shoot this rifle. No, that sounds convoluted, but it's, it's, it's very odd. But now the beautiful part is I have two guns and I can use 5070 brass or I can use this other brass in it, which is very good. Uh, you cannot put 5070 in a unconverted 12.7 by 44 because the rim is is larger. You'd have to, the, the people who do it just, just trim down the, uh, the rim to 16 millimeters. Um, and so, you know, but you can do it the other way. So it's, uh, it's, it's going to be fun. And I, I've taken it out and I've fired it. And of course it, it is the, you know, this is the, this is the military rolling block. that has got a ridiculous 36 inch barrel on it. I mean, this, the look of this thing is awesome. It's got the 36-inch barrel. Um, and the one I bought, of course, I, I will tell you that the bore and the mechanics are excellent. The bore is excellent. Mechanics are excellent. The exterior of it, it it's it's gray metal, and it's kind of an oily, oil-soaked stock that's got dents in it. No real gouges, but dents in it. Um, it looks the part. I mean, I love it. It's distressed-looking, uh, but the sights are in good shape. And the uh, um, the bore is excellent, and the other the mechanics, you know, it locks up really tight. And it does have the problem of a Remington rolling block, which is it's it must have an 18-pound trigger. Now that is correctable, and and there was actually a reason for that. Um, and friend of the podcast and I were actually discussing this on the phone a few days ago. You know, the Remington rolling block was an excellent gun simply because it was, and this is this is his theory, which I totally agree with, but this is not my original thinking that it says very, you know, poorly trained troops could use it very easily. It was very easy to use. So your conscripts could use the rolling block. It's just simple. It's intuitive. It's very simple. And uh, I totally agree with that. It's also extremely reliable. And it's also extremely durable. And uh, I can see why it was such a popular gun, even to the point where some were used in World War One. You know, uh, the French bought them and the British bought them. The British actually bought them in 7mm Spanish Mauser because that was just what Remington had on hand. And they said they had like 2,000 of them. And the British said, yeah, hey, we'll buy them. And they stuck them on, you know, auxiliary ships that where the chance of using a rifle would be very, very small. So, and I actually have uh, something else about that. Um, and I'll, I'll go into it right now because I just mentioned it. But the rolling block in 7mm Spanish, the other place I've seen it, which is really odd, is in the U.S. Special Operations Museum on Fort Bragg, which is now, I think, called Fort Liberty. But in North Carolina, 
they had a thing for the U.S. Indian Scouts, which they considered kind of a ancillary, you know, ancestral special operations force. And they have a seven millimeter rolling block in there, which they claim that these types of rifles were issued to the Indian Scouts. And I'm just thinking, yeah, they probably bought surplus ones from Remington. You know, Remington probably said, yeah, we got 500 of these things here. You want them? This is what they cost. Um, it seems odd that they would not be in a U.S. military cartridge, but, you know, hey, I mean, who knows? Now, there is a chance that this museum could be totally wrong and this could be all bullcrap, but um, it's been there for years. It's been there for at least 10 years that I know of. So somebody would have called BS on it. Um, so I think it's very interesting. The rolling block and 7mm Spanish Mauser used by the U.S. Indian Scouts, which is really an unusual, unusual development. Uh, you don't really see that when you're doing internet research or anything else. So that's it. The last thing I wanted to cover was the, uh, you know, the 5070 Sharps. Um, because since obviously I got rekindled on 5070, uh, the beautiful part is, hey, that 50 Alaskan brass trimmed down works just fine in it. That's that's nice to know. The uh, 50 set regular 5070 brass, of course, works. I use a uh, Lee uh, 515 450 grain bullet on top of black powder with with a wad using my home lube which is olive oil and uh, beeswax um, and that all that all seems to be a good combination seems to be a good combination so I, I really uh, I really like that I've used not that bullet but I've used a 45 caliber bullet with that load um, in 4570 and also in um, 577450 martini henry so um a lot of people you know basically say you got to use the animal fat the tallow in in the lube but i i just don't use that i just use the olive oil and the beeswax and i've been just fine so uh we'll see how that all see how that all shakes but it's worked for me for a long time so uh that's kind of my my recipe with those but it's nice to know that there's alternative brass that is that's something that rarely ha it rarely works out that way that the uh, stars align so well but uh, it has happened this time so let's uh, go into now that we've we've pontificated about people and and different other different things let's talk about some questions and answers and the first thing I'll say is you know a lot of the gun content people don't do questions and answers anymore um, you know that used to be kind of one of the few times I would I would watch a couple of the YouTube guys, and uh, they don't seem to be doing it anymore. I guess it's uh, I guess they got tired of it, you know, whatever it is. But whenever I find them, I I really enjoy answering questions. And this is what do you think of semi-auto versions of rifle caliber machine guns, and then as a add-on to that, pistol caliber submachine guns. Well, you know, I think those things are, and we're normally talking something gets, like a Bren gun gets torched into a parts kit. It comes over here, you need a new receiver and a barrel. The receiver has to be 
such that it'll fire from closed bolt and semi-automatic and then they put the rest of the parts on I, I think these things are fine um, I don't see a you know again it's it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier of you know it gives you a taste of it but it's it's not the the real thing but it, they're fun and um, unfortunately they're not cheap it is not cheap to get something like that but um, uh, our friend of the podcast has got some experience he's had he's had a couple some that he's um, divested himself of and a few others and I just I will just tell you that to me the most fun are the like Thompson's or Suomi's or, or some of these other ones that are kind of the submachine guns there, there seem to be the most fun I have fired the um, semi-automatic uh, the Ohio Ordnance BIR A3 they call it the semi-automatic only one uh, and that's a great that's great I mean but you know to get one of those you you are at that type of weapon um, you are talking about a lot of weight and a lot of you know they're harder to clean it's a lot of weight it's a it's much more of a production so uh, that's that's kind of how that all is shaken out uh, they're very cool I personally like the pistol caliber ones um, I think they're just they're a lot of fun plus you can you can kind of tap that trigger and and uh, they're fun to fire rapid fire so anyway that's where I am with those they're great but a lot of times they are dependent on the individual build okay next question stripper clips why did they last so long in military service well I don't know really know they lasted all that long they kinda came in about 1890 kinda went out about well they, they went out after world no that's not even true that's not even strictly true they went out in the late 50s I guess 60 1960 we'll just say 1960 um, I think the M14 was might have been one of the last rifles to have a stripper clip guide on it um, I know others others have had it um, you know but the the fact of the matter is uh, interchangeable magazines were such a better idea but the first generations of uh, semi-automatic military rifles either had a fixed magazine or a magazine that was not designed to be uh, rapidly changed so the stripper clip was still a familiar um, a very familiar option for all that so um, it was definitely something that hung around and you know even even today you know you can get you know you can get ammunition that's loaded on stripper clips that you can just load directly into the magazine you know the m16 does that um so it's 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 pretty interesting how all that uh how all that shakes out um but they were around forever and ever my my deal is is that man fine motor skills of putting that thing in the right place and there are guys who can do it on youtube and all that to all i can say is they're not doing it in combat or they're not doing it in a, a hot very high stress situation in which case you know fumbling is even under the clock I've seen people fumble with these things so that's pretty interesting but you know they stayed around so long because the weapons that were uh, designed for them stayed around so long you, you, a lot of times you just can't afford to uh, replace everything so all right our next question 
why weren't there more intermediate cartridges in World War One? Certainly the 351 Winchester and even the 401 Winchester self-loading cartridges were used. Why not the 30 caliber Remington and similar cartridges? They could have been put in a reasonably designed semi-automatic rifle and made available. The technology did exist. They could have produced something like that. But first of all, they could have produced more Winchester 1907s or Winchester 1910s in, in 401. They could have produced more of those. That probably would have been the easiest. But they were never going to get them in the numbers they needed because that's a, not an easy weapon to manufacture. Um, while the, it did have detachable magazines, they're, they're not like AR-15 magazines. I, I find them a lot more difficult. Um, they would have been an improvement and they would have been cool, but you know they were not the... It's, it's not like doing AR magazines. It's not that good. Uh, the next thing was introducing more calibers was a problem. Um, you know, it was just it, at a certain point, World War One became "come as you are." Um, the British found that out. Hey, they developed this great pattern 13 rifle with a 276 cartridge. Would have been awesome, but you know what? They had to go with what they had. Fortunately, it worked out pretty well for them. But, you know, you, you just, at a certain point, you have to arm people. And you the stuff that's already in production is the best way to go. And complicating your logistics with having more and more and more ammunition um, just was not a winner. It just was not a winner. Um, yes, they could have easily made a 30 caliber Remington uh, which is basically a rimless 3030. They could have made that, and it would have been a great cartridge. It would have been a great car. Imagine that in a 10 or 15 round magazine in a semi-automatic rifle that looks something like a Remington Model 8. You know, I mean, that would have been a great rifle. But you know, that would have been a terrible machine gun cartridge. And machine guns were very, very important in the First World War, and they were not going to be something that. Um, that was you know you could just add on to you couldn't just have for the sake of a great rifle a crappy machine gun um, and 30 Remington would have been a crappy machine gun compared to full power 303 even 8 millimeter LaBelle and certainly 30-06 so it was just never gonna happen the other thing is the firepower that that rifle an intermediate cartridge rifle would have provided they took a different design road and they knew that they could produce submachine guns. The Germans produced a 9mm submachine gun. The uh, USA had the Thompson. Didn't quite make it to the war, but it, it would have if the war had lasted longer. It would have made it there. So, uh, there, you know, the submachine gun was going to, was the answer for the firepower need in World War I as opposed to an intermediate cartridge rifle. And so we had to wait until the end of the Second World War to really understand the value. And I would even say the United States missed the boat on that until the late 50s. Um, spent all the time developing the M14 rifle and said, oops, we've just reinvented the M1 Garand. <laughs> you know, they, they, just inter they just reinvented a rifle, as great as it was, but they reinvented the M1 Garand, which they had adopted 
20 some years before um, you know in 57 they <laughs> and they adopted the grand initially in 36 and so it's like oops you know missed the boat missed missed the generation you know um, and uh, that's why Armalite was such a revolutionary the Armalite uh, rifles were so revolutionary because of the small caliber the lightweight the uh, advanced materials uh, you know it's it was it was really a shock and and you attribute that not only to just backward thinking but you know the US Army and I've said this before was very very pleased with the M1 rifles so consequently um, you know reinforcing that success seemed to be um, the smart way to go and as we found out it kind of it turned out a another very good rifle but it wasn't exactly the one we needed so have you ever seen Israeli marked Armalite AR7 22 caliber survival rifles the answer is yes um, I understand that they were Israeli Air Force issue I have heard they carried them in F4 Phantoms I can't believe though that that was the exclusive use that they were only in F4s they were probably in every aircraft um, I don't quite understand the rationale for it because face it Israel was not going to be flying a lot of places where you need a survival rifle you know they're surrounded by desert um, it, it really wasn't meant to be a fighting rifle it, they were very cool they had um, extra they did not have the AR7 buttstock as we know it the the metal one that everything goes into and you can seal it up and it's waterproof and it'll float in a river or, or a pond or something these had a uh, like a wire just a straight wire stock that retracted and in the wire stock they had a little just a clip just a, a sheet metal clip that uh, held two um, 10 round magazines and you had a 10 rounder in the gun and in the pistol grip it looked like it looks almost like an FAL pistol grip and in the bottom there was this uh, package that was wax coated in wax that had 22 caliber ammunition in it so I guess if you you crash land your plane you reach in the back you grab this thing you could run off into the desert and you'd have a rifle and ammunition it's not like you had to go poking around to, to find that stuff so that's the uh, that's the AR-7 it's actually you know they're actually pretty cool they're actually pretty cool little guns um, I've seen them and they, they are genuine Armalite guns they're not charter arms they're not Henry repeating arms they were genuine Armalite which makes them makes them kind of cool but yes they had them and they're marked um, with the kind of little Hebrew stamp on them that's uh, it's not the IDF logo one it's just uh it looks kind of like an em i think or an easy stamp in a box but it's an israeli mark all right were colt m1901 revolvers used in world war one yes the colt model 1901 and 1903 i think was the last one um were used in world war one in extreme rear echelon unimportant roles uh, they were 38 long cold 
you know, the army had ammunition for them. The army had the guns. Some of them they went and shagged from the, I guess, the National Guard uh, had a bunch of them. So they basically said, turn all these in. And they issued them to, like, rear echelon troops. It would never be within miles of an enemy soldier. But, you know, you, you know guys, say, guarding a fuel dump or guarding an ammo dump needed something. And, uh, you know, you, you would get that. You know, railroad troops... Uh, who were building railroad rail lines for resupply you know people they needed to be armed but they weren't expecting to be anywhere near enemy contact but uh, just for just for precautions they were armed and that's that's what they got um yeah that's that's what they got okay here is the next question why wasn't the colt M1909 revolver in 45 Colt used in World War One. Well, it may have been. Um, I'm sure it was used in the States. I don't think any of them got to France, but I'm sure they had them in the Philippines. I'm sure they had them other places. Uh, the Colt New Service in 45 Colt is a big, ponderous gun. Even by today's standards, it is a big ponderous gun um, there were several there were several problems with it um, and that had nothing to do with quality or they're excellent guns but the 45 Colt ammunition had a very stingy rim uh, from its inception because it was designed to be in single action revolvers which didn't need the rim to be very big for extraction didn't need it at all because they had an ejection rod which poked them out individually for the 1909 they had to uh, uh, increase that rim a little bit so the star extractor on the swing out cylinder could pop all six cartridges at once and it wouldn't just slip over them so they actually used a slightly different 45 Colt cartridge and I forget the nomenclature of it it may be you know cartridge m1909 or some cartridge 45 caliber m1909 could be that i know they could not use them in the 45 colt single action army revolvers because the rim was so big you, you could only use them if you skipped every other chamber so you could load three rounds in it you know because you couldn't put them in adjacent chambers because the rims would interfere with each other couldn't do it but you could use them in the uh, m1909 revolver I think the M1909 revolver was a mistake to put it. If you're going to introduce a new cartridge, why not just put a little bit bigger rim on a Schofield cartridge and then you could scale the revolver back just a little bit and it wouldn't be quite so ponderous. Just my idea. That's what I would have done because, hey, you're not going to use these, you know, you're not going to use these cartridges. Um... Why have a 45 Colt? You don't need it. You can use these Schofield cartridges in other other arms, you know, that are chambered for 45 Colt. They're just a little shorter, kind of like using a 38 Special and a 357. Um, you know, so they could have made it, and they didn't. They weren't going to use any of the old 45 Colt ammo in these new guns, so they should have just used a Schofield-based cartridge and uh, had done that. Um, I I don't know that. I, I've never actually read 
anything which says a 1909 got to France. If it did, it was in an officer's holster, much the way, you know, Patton kind of carried his single action army. It would have been kind of a private thing somebody would have done. They would have been responsible for their own ammo. All of that would have been, it would have had to have been a, a situation like that. And, and frankly, why would you do that when you could just pick up, they had scads of Model 1917 Colt revolvers, which is the same revolver, a little bit skinnier barrel, but it's the same revolver, only it's uh, got a, and it's got a shorter cylinder and chambered in uh, 45 ACP. So unless somebody just peculiarly wanted a, um, a 45 Colt revolver, double action revolver, I don't see why somebody would take it to France. I just don't see that. It was just the, the there were too many other good alternatives, and of course after after World War One there was such a glut of 1911s and everything that you know the the 45 caliber revolvers just went the uh, 45 ACP 1917 revolvers went into storage and basically went to the National Guard and anybody else who would take them uh, the 45 Colt revolvers uh, M1909s I think some of them ended up in the post uh, the Postal Service, you know, or mail train, mail guards, that kind of thing. Um, so they they were kind of there were enough 45 1911 pistols that they could uh, they could just divest themselves of these revolvers. Same thing with the 1901 and 1903 38 long Colts. You know, those those things were those things were uns they were never really that liked anyway. So now they were. Um, now they were they had they finally had a reason to get rid of them so that's the story and that's it for this edition of old school guns the podcast that tells you exactly like it is and if you have any questions or comments you can always send them to me at kbmakel at aol.com kbmakel at aol.com or put them in the comment section of podbean But until next time, this is Old School Guns, out.